What's the strangest craving you've ever had? What's that like one weird longing that it's just like a visceral longing for something? See, whenever I was a kid growing up, I always had this strange craving for Doritos and milk. And I know, I, I know what you're thinking, like, how did you ever come to that conclusion? I have no idea, but for some reason, every time I ate Doritos, I always had a craving for a glass of milk. And even today, every time I even see a bag of Doritos, which I try my best to stay away from them, but every time I even see one, I find this longing coming up for a glass of milk as well. Now, I definitely could have worse cravings, but that has been one that I've had ever since I was a little kid. Well, what about you? What's the strongest craving that you've ever had? I can assume the mothers listening probably have all sorts of strange stories during their pregnancy days and all the strange things that they desired and craved and wanted to eat. And I was really interested about this idea, so I did kind of a deep dive on the internet to find out what are some of the strangest cravings that uh, pregnant women had during, you know, during their pregnancies. And here's a few of them that I found online. One woman said this. She said, I didn't know I was pregnant, but I was watching Elf, and Buddy was making his spaghetti with maple syrup and candy, marshmallows, etc., and it looked amazing. Tested positive two days later. Another woman answered that she ate sardines on Ritz crackers with blueberries and country gravy on strawberries and cantaloupe. Oh man, they sounded disgusting then, but they were so amazing. And then another woman said, I'm not ashamed to say I ate Twinkies dumped in ranch dressing. Uh, any other ladies crave that? Now, apparently there is, a, as I was kind of doing a deep dive on this, I found out that there is uh, this condition where sometimes women actually crave non-food items. There was one woman I found online who said that she craved palm olive, like the dish detergent. She craved palm olive on her cheeseburger. She didn't eat it, of course, but she said for some reason it just looked really, really good in the bottle. In fact, someone I uh, had kind of put the question out to even our community, for the women in our community, strange things they craved whenever they were pregnant. And there was actually one woman in our community who claimed that at one point she thought dirt looked really good. She says she didn't eat it, but you know, you know, who, know who knows? But of course, my favorite one that I found online was this, dog biscuits. <laughs> and she said, an entire case of 36 full-size Mr. Good Bars, which I ate in one sitting. Like, that is just impressive. And of course, there's a lot of other funny ones that many of you even, if you took part in that kind of social media thread I put out there, uh, too many to name some of the funny ones I thought. Grilled cheese dipped in applesauce, cottage cheese and applesauce and pork and beans all put together, eggs with relish. One said that she wanted cheese on and in everything, which of course I thought, wait, you have to be pregnant to want cheese on and in everything? Because if that's the case, then uh, Lindsay, I have some news. But see, all that to say, we find ourselves having all sorts of cravings, and oftentimes we're unsure what to do with those cravings. There was one mother online who even said this, and I feel like this captures the idea. The strange thing isn't about the foods. It's the intensity of the desire at the time. How many of you have felt desires that were so strong, you just you didn't quite know what to do with them? 
Many of us remember our teenage days when all, all sorts of new and strange desires would begin to come over you and you're unsure of or unprepared what to do with them. And oftentimes it's, not, it's hard not to feel like as humans, we are just a giant bundle of desires and many of them go unfulfilled to our frustration. And so we've been in this series called, Why Are You Hiding? And we're looking at all the different ways that shame and guilt can affect us in our lives, in different aspects of our lives, but also how Jesus himself had come to save us from shame and guilt. It's far too easy for these things in these different areas of our lives to make us feel like we're constantly a failure, there's something constantly wrong with us. In fact, in the first week, Darren talked about the very nature of shame and guilt, going all the way, you know, the spiritual aspect of it, going all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 when shame and guilt began to appear in the garden when Adam and Eve first ate of the fruit. And then last week, Jonathan talked about the shame and guilt that oftentimes we deal with mentally when we deal with issues like anxiety and depression and uh, the shame and guilt that can come with mental illness. Uh, See, and the interesting thing about it is even the, the, the difference between guilt and shame because guilt tends to center around our behavior while shame tends to center around our identity. It's kind of the difference between saying like guilt is I did something bad, whereas shame is saying I am bad. And so today I want to talk about shame and guilt, but in a slightly different way. I want to talk about how, uh, you know, sometimes we can feel around things we've done or things that have been done to us with our bodies, how sometimes we feel guilt and shame with how we've treated and how we've acted in these bodies that God has given us. And so I want to start with this. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote some very powerful words that I feel like in many ways captures the essence of what I want to talk about today. And then I'm going to kind of tease this out. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, Paul writes this. He says, he's writing this to the Corinthian church. He says, do you not know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Now notice this. It says, You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, let me ask you, when you hear those words, what's your first response? Like gut check feeling when you hear those words. If I were to guess, I would say many of you probably feel a little bit of guilt and probably a little bit of shame when you hear these because you automatically begin to think of all the examples of all the times when you have not honored God with your body, when you've not treated your body like a temple of the Holy Spirit, either because of things done to you, which we're going to come back to that later, or things you have done yourself. There can often be a sense of guilt and shame that we feel around our bodies. And so Paul wrote those words we just read in a very particular context. And though that context is very important, we're actually going to come back to the context later. I want to look at the verse on its own for a minute because I actually think it's saying something extremely important that needs to be kind of a starting point for where we talk about it. Because really, in a lot of ways, Paul's words here are not just a starting point and they're really not even an ending point, but rather they are kind of a summing up, a snapshot, a story and theme that in many ways pervades the entire biblical narrative. 
By calling us temples of the Holy Spirit, Paul was telling us that an embodied life is essential to the spiritual life. Literally from the very beginning of creation to its culmination, life in the body is both crucial and central to the spiritual life. And if you don't believe me, we can take just a very brief walk through biblical history. We see in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the first humans, Adam and Eve, as spiritual beings made in his image. And guess what? They are made with physical bodies that are not called good or even pretty good, but they are called very good. The very breath of God is enfleshed in bodies to reign and rule on the earth in his name. Later on in Deuteronomy 30, we're shown that the covenant that God makes with Israel, his people, include all of these physical effects on our bodies and our lives. You know, rain falling from the skies, famine and disease affecting our bodies, blessings and cursings, depending on whether Israel was faithful to the Lord or not. Psalm 63, 1 through 5, shows this, uh, you know, this desire for God expressed in a lot of language in, in, involving a lot of physicality. Listen to the physicality of these words in Psalm 63. It says, you, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. See, David was showing with just the, the raw physicality of this psalm that the spiritual life is meant to be a thoroughly physical life. And we see this in some of his other writings. Psalm 139 talks about how we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that you're knit together in your mother's womb. Song of Solomon presents this picture of sexuality and spirituality that are so intermeshed and so uh, you know overlapping in many ways that... Uh, young Jewish boys were not even allowed to read Song of Solomon because it could make, uh, you know, the most reverent rabbi blush at the physicality of the language. And so, of course, then the culmination of this comes, according to John 1, when the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That this was the moment when the infinite clothed itself with the finite the divine enfleshed itself with the mortal for our sake to redeem that which was at one time very good, but now is very broken. See, Jesus didn't become human to save us from our physical bodies so we could go off as spirits someday to live somewhere else. But instead, he came to show us what embodied spirituality looked like and to redeem our, not just our souls, but our bodies as well. On the cross, and then just in case you didn't think the body really mattered that much to Jesus, his ministry culminates with a physical resurrection from the dead, where he's literally holding out, saying, Touch the wounds in my hand, feel the wound in my side, see that I am very real. And it says he sits down and actually eats with them. 
And then, of course, when Jesus ascends to heaven, it says he bodily, physically ascends. And that's a truth that we often forget. We think Jesus somehow, you know, he took on a human body, but then he left it whenever he ascended to heaven. But, but no, the truth is he is living in a physical body right now, sitting at the right hand of the Father. King Jesus is ruling and reigning with a physical resurrected body. And so then, and that was meant to be what the scriptures call the first fruits, the beginning, so that when human history culminates at the end of the ages, Jesus will bring the story full circle with a physical resurrection of all of our bodies to live with God forever. And so knowing that this was the beginning and our final end, this is why Paul wrote, when he was explaining the gospel for literally 11 chapters in the book of Romans, he culminates a kind of crescendo in Romans 12 where he says, this is the natural response to the good news. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy shown to us in the gospel, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper Worship. See, your body matters to God because you and I, we house the greatest gift ever given to us, that of God's spirit. That is why embodied spirituality matters, why our bodies mean so much to God. Because see, the, the Hebrews believed that we were called to be whole beings, the physical and the spiritual, all together as one. That there isn't one part of us that is more human than the other. That all of it was meant to come together to be fully human. This is why they tell us that the most important commandment, and Jesus affirmed this, was to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. And that last part, that's talking about your body. See, the point this verse makes is that we are not physical beings trying to become spiritual. We are broken beings trying to become whole. We're trying to become human as God intended, as he created us. Spirit, soul, and body belonging to one as God. The physical can't be divorced from the spiritual, at least not permanently, because they were made for each other. But because of the existence of sin in the world, because we live in this current age where things are still broken, things are still messed up, there's still a disparity between what should be and what is, our desires and our bodies often manifest themselves in all kinds of ways to where they're not glorifying to God. Our bodies fail us in many, way, in many more ways than one. And this is why Peter, the Apostle Peter, writes in 1 Peter 2.11, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. He says there's these desires that are in us and they're broken, they're marred because of sin. And so we have to be careful that we don't just live out every desire we have unchecked, unfiltered, because it can leave us astray. We all feel like, you know, there's all kinds of desires and we're unsure to how to handle them. Like the cravings I mentioned before, it's not that the cravings or desires are bad in and of themselves. It's the intensity of them, right? Desire for food, for comfort, for physical intimacy and 
we don't know how to deal with them. And so oftentimes we just live, live them out whatever way they come to us and whatever feels most expedient at the time. And so we binge eat junk food. We take part in hookup culture. We look at pornography. We become addicted to illegal substances because they either calm us or they stimulate us, whatever we happen to be needing at the time. And it's interesting because in the early centuries of the church, early Christian leaders often referred to sin itself as dis disordered desire. I thought I always thought that was interesting because the Hebrew word that is used for sin was actually an archery term. It actually meant to miss the mark. See, they viewed sin as a result of we have all of these desires, all of these impulses, and because of sin, those desires are now aiming at the wrong thing. They are going the wrong direction. They're not aimed at the intended desire that God had originally created them when they were very good. And so now these naturally good desires for things like physical intimacy or comfort or satisfaction have become disordered and they are unattached from God's original design. And so now when I follow my desires to their natural end, it leads to places that are often destructive and harmful either to myself or to other people. And then that leads to guilt and to shame, guilt for the things I've done and shame for the person that I have become. And so what I do then is I hide my desires or I hide my behavior. My physical desires, they're still there. I just don't acknowledge them. I ignore them. I try to push them down. But then that means I begin dealing with them in isolation by myself in the darkness, and then little by little, over time, they gain more and more control over me until I am enslaved to them. And that is the essence of addiction. Choices we make with our desires form into dependencies that we are then unable to break on our own because they have formed a literal disease, a dis-ease in our bodies. Guys, this is why 40 million people in America view pornography on a regular basis. Why 24 million people are estimated to be sex addicts in our culture. We don't understand our desires. And because of that, they enslave us. And what's even worse is when you deal with these types of things with sexuality and problems with that. And it's not even your fault. Because the truth is, there are some of you watching right now who are dealing with the fallout of disordered desires, and it's not your fault. You have great shame or great guilt around your body, or around desires you have, and it's because of something that someone did to you that was not your choice. Maybe when you were younger, as a child, maybe in your marriage, physical abuse, molestation, rape. Your body was violated against your will, and now you are dealing with the guilt and shame about those things. Or maybe it was how sexuality was modeled to you whenever you were younger, and it shaped things in you that are not your fault. See, you need to hear me today. It's not your fault. You didn't choose that. It was chosen for you, and you are living in the fallout of those effects. Because I remember I was reading around this recently, and I think it's something like one in five women will be raped in their lifetime. 
One in three women will face some sort of sexual violence or sexual abuse at some point in their life. And I remember reading that and thinking, that can't be true. There's no way that's true. And then I find myself hearing stories and talking to people and people who seem like, oh yeah, my life's fine, great marriage, kids, all that, and then find out they were abused when they were little. Or a boyfriend at a party did something he wasn't supposed to against her will and, you know, whatever. And I realize... Like, this is a terrible thing that we're living in. And the worst part about all of that is that for those of you who are watching right now and you realize that's you, you dealt with that thing at some point when you were a kid or maybe in adulthood or whatever, a family member took advantage of you when you were little, whatever it is, the saddest thing about all of that is you think it's your fault. You feel great shame. You feel great guilt about it. Had I just done this or I had to done this, then it wouldn't have happened. And you are blaming yourself and you shouldn't. See, I think in many ways, this is why Jesus responded to the women he did in the Bible the way that he did in John 4 and the woman caught in adultery in John 8. I think in both instances, Jesus understood the world of disordered desire He understands that sometimes people are put in positions where they have to make decisions that they have no other choice. They're stuck in the situation. They're enslaved to the thing that has captured them. See, I think Jesus knew the reality of disordered desires because he knew the design. He knew how it should have been. And so it's no wonder that he only felt compassion when he saw his beloved sons and daughters stray so far from what should be. Because you see, people like that who deal with things like this, man or woman, don't need a good shaming. They need rescuing. They need redeeming. They need Jesus. And so I need you to hear this for those of you who have dealt with this or are dealing with this right now. Jesus is not scared of your sexuality. He is not scared of your sexual sin. He knows and he loves. And his church should be a place of healing, not of shame. So how do we respond to these disordered desires that we have in our body that have been broken and marred and misaimed because of sin? How do we live out these good and God-given urges that are put within us that are meant to be lived out in a particular design, but often they go astray because of our sin? Well, in his book called Fill These Hearts, God's Sex and the Universal Longing, Christopher West, the author of it, actually talks about the usual responses when we're dealing with our desires and when we're dealing with our urges. And in his book, he talks about how essentially there are three different ways that we can respond to the desires and urges that we experience. And only one of these three ways actually leads to wholeness. And so the first way that we often deal with it is what he calls the starvation diet. Now, this is where we automatically assume my desires are wrong, my desires are sinful, and therefore every desire I have, I can't live out. I have to deny, I have to abstain, I have to ignore them and push them down and have nothing to do with them. And this often tends tends to be the mode of the religious. Much like someone who's trying to lose weight and they think the only way they're going to lose weight is by starving themselves. We often think the only way we can deal with the desires of our body is to ignore them, to abstain from them, to deny them in totality. 
So we choose the path of severity and discipline and self-denial to beat down our desires until we feel like we can, can control them. But the Apostle Paul actually writes about this and reveals a stark reality about the idea of the starvation diet. To the Colossian church, he wrote this in chapter 2, verse 21 where he's quoting from them in a sense where it says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with the things that are destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But notice this last part, they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. See, Paul at the time was dealing with a religious sect that was known for being quite severe on the human body, who lived by what you know, Christopher West would call the starvation diet. And this, the point he's making it is in the text is that in the end, though you may experience freedom for a little bit, in the end, you won't find freedom from those desires. For anyone who has tried to starve themselves... What's happened? You do well for a while, but because willpower is not meant to sustain behavior over a long period of time, eventually willpower collapses and what happens? You binge. Many of us have lived that where we go through this binge purge cycle. I try really hard, fail, get mad at myself, redouble my efforts, try really hard, fail, and on and on and on. And see, these things... It seems like they're going to produce discipline, but they can't sustain continual freedom over a long period of time. It is just a matter of time before you give in. Now, the second response, he says, actually goes kind of to the opposite direction. This is what he calls the fast food diet. There's the starvation diet, then there's the fast food diet. So basically, this is just not even trying to resist any desire that you might have. You know, it's just giving into every desire that you have. You know, this Doritos and milk, you just give into it. Whether it's food, whether it's just, you know, sex, any desire we have, we give ourselves over to it and we indulge ourselves completely, always and all the time. If I feel it, I live it out. And see, it's actually this context is the context that we read that first passage in 1 Corinthians 6. In fact, this is what he says right after that saying, honor God with your bodies. You know, your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is what he writes the context for, where he's quoting the Corinthians, where he says, you know, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexuality. So he's saying this is not God's design for it, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. See, in Corinth, Paul was dealing with a group called the Epicureans. And they believed that sensual desire was something that was meant to be, you know, enjoyed and fully given yourself over to. The Greeks in the ancient world, they believed that the soul was just imprisoned by the physical body, that the physical was bad, the spiritual was good. And so what you do with your body, the desires that you feel, how you live them out, actually have no bearing on the spiritual life because the flesh is just a prison for the soul, which is true spirituality. But of course, Paul wanted them to know the body was meant for God. 
it and your soul and your spirit were all meant to be together and that these natural desires, they were meant to be lived out in a particular design and anything outside of that was falling short of the mark of what God created us for and would only lead to slavery. So this Starvation diet doesn't work. The fast food diet doesn't work. And so finally, there is a third choice called the banquet. Now, I love Thanksgiving. All the home-cooked comfort food and noodles and turkey, mashed potatoes and gravy and pumpkin pie. Like, I still believe that candy corn is the greatest proof for the existence of God. I'm going to believe that to the day I die. It's just a great time of joy and celebration. Now, of course, on that day, I eat whatever I want and I do not hold back. But of course, I don't do that every day. I can't live every day like it's Thanksgiving because then I'd weigh like 500 pounds. It would just not be good. But I know on that day, it has a particular purpose, a particular design, a particular reason that I'm celebrating. So I give myself in that moment fully over to it because I know that is what that day is for. That's what my desires in that moment are meant to celebrate. So I give myself over to it. But of course, something that always happens, I've noticed, is that when the day is over, I feel a little sad. Does anybody else feel that way when days like Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever, when they're over, immediately I feel this sadness because I wish that it could last forever. I don't want it to end. I don't want it to just be once a year because it's something that you look forward to, something that you hope for, something that you enjoy when it's here, but when it's over, you kind of get sad. You long for it. See, in Isaiah 25, verse 6, it says this. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. I think it's interesting that the primary imagery of life with God at the end of the ages on the day of the Lord is a feast, a great banquet. And when Jesus returns, the Bible says that we are going to be invited to what's called the great wedding supper of the Lamb. It's a feast. Now, why am I bringing up banquet imagery in the midst of a talk about desire and sex in our bodies? Because it's important to know that your desires point to a design that points to your destiny. Christopher West explains it really well in his book. This is what he writes. He says, it seems that it seems I have three options. Number one, I can repress my desire in hopes of alleviating the sadness. That's the starvation diet. Two, I can gluttonously indulge in my desire in more food than my body needs. That's the fast food diet. Or three, I can let the deliciousness of the meal and the sadness that it's over do its job. To awaken my hope in and whet my desire for the life to which I'm destined. The life beyond this life where the banquet never ends. You see, the desires of our body are meant to be enjoyed according to God's original design, so that when they fall short of fully satisfying us in this life, and they will, they're actually pointing us to a hope and an ecstasy that will come when the bride of Christ finally becomes one with the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. 
So that means all the pleasures of food and sex and comfort and all the things in this life should be enjoyed in their proper design that God gave us without guilt or shame and any longing or yearning left over should point us to the ultimate fulfillment that is coming someday when there is a feast that will never end. And for those of you who have been wounded by desire, I believe on that day as well, a great healing will come with that banquet and you will never ever have to hide again. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these bodies that you have given us, this body in which we live our lives on this earth. God, I thank you for our desires, though sometimes they are strong, sometimes they feel unmanageable. God, I thank you that there is a design in which they point to. And there is a destiny to which that design points to so that I know that I can enjoy the desires that you've given me in their proper context. And when that satisfaction falls short and I feel unfulfilled, it points me to heaven. It points me to a feast, a banquet that is coming in which I will be with you forever. And every desire, every longing in my heart will be fully and completely satisfied. So my prayer for everyone watching today is that may God our desires, our urges, our longings point us to heaven, point us to the banquet. And may we accept nothing less but that. In Jesus' name, amen.